evangelicals in particular tend to think that, you know, a lot is, is kind of God-ordained. It's just the way things are, the way things have been meant to be. And history shows us that, no, it's not the case. And once you can see how things came to be, that, that situates you to say, yeah, you know what, maybe this isn't how we want things and maybe we can, um, we can change things going forward. That is Kristen Cobez Dumay, the author of Jesus and John Wayne. And at the podcast, we help you navigate faith in the modern world. And this conversation with her is definitely going to do that for you. But first, two things. First of all, let me tell you about my friends at Mission Resource Network, or MRN. You have a vital role in God's missions. MRN helps you fulfill it meaningful. I've known these folks at MRN for many years. They know you have a burning desire to fulfill your calling, and they have some of the top people people in the field of missions to help you do that. As you work to share the hope of Jesus with a broken world, the folks at MRN can help you overcome your most challenging missions problems. And that's not all. One of the things they do best, which I really appreciate, is their expertise in the field of missionary care. They know how to take care of the missionaries you as a church or as an organization send out, as well as the families they leave behind. So do yourself a favor, and also your missionaries and your missions committee, reach out to MRN today at mrnet.org and you get a free article, Avoiding the Missions Black Hole, by emailing missions at mrnet.org. That is missions at mrnet.org. Go check them out. Now, second thing I want to tell you before we get to uh, Dr. Dumez. Starting tomorrow... August 2nd, I assume you listen to this podcast as soon as it comes out Monday morning. Uh, Tomorrow, August 2nd, is the first day that you can get my most recent book, Befriending Your Monsters, for $1.99 on Amazon and a few other places. So I'd encourage you to do me a favor. Go check that book out. It's a a $1.99. Like, that's basically for free. And it would be a great way uh, to support the podcast like go, go go buy a copy of the book not only does it support uh you and helping you befriend your monsters but uh it, it gives us some love and so here's the thing some of you are like hey i don't i don't do the ebook and just because the electronic version is only a dollar 99 on amazon i don't read that but this is what i want you to do if you go right now buy the ebook and then you post about it and tag me in the post like on instagram and i see it I am going to give out a stack of books to the first, I don't know, 15 or 20 people who post about it, and I will actually send you a signed copy. So if you tag me in it, um, make sure I see it, and then I will follow up and send you an actual signed uh, paperback copy. So you're like, hey, I don't I don't like to read ebooks. Well, guess what? You buy it anyway. Tag me in the post, and then... Uh, like I'll, if first come first serve, but like you might get a free copy out of it that's signed. So go ahead and do that. Uh, it would be greatly appreciated. So like I said, that is starting August second through August 9th. Get you a copy of it and uh, like go leave a good review too while you're at it because it would be deeply appreciated. So um, go befriend your monsters. And now with further ado, this like this conversation, I really. Uh, like Dr. Dumay, I think you're going to uh, really appreciate what she has to say. Whether you agree with her conclusions or not, I, I think that's immaterial. I think what we all can hear is like, this is a really important subject. And uh, the way she gives us a backstory to where we presently are right now is invaluable for each and every one of you. So go, actually don't, just keep listening. Here we go. Hello, friends. Today we have on the podcast from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Is that right? Yes. Dr. Kristen Cobes Dumay. Perfect, how, you got it. Per, perfect. Okay, you like the like the the middle name and the last name like they're like different at like origin, aren't they? Yes. So uh, I was born Kristen Cobes, and that's a Dutch name, and apparently comes from the word Jacob Jacobus. Uh, so we hear a very uncommon name. Uh, and my mom was a, a Dutch immigrant. My whole family is uh, a Dutch heritage. And then Dumay, I married into a French family that's actually Dutch. Also, it's Huguenot. Um, but I thought it was a cool name, so I added it because I was a, a budding feminist back in the day. I kept my own name as well, and it was this terrible mouthful. And I never thought I'd be any anything like a public figure. And so now I do regret that, but that's my name. Can I be honest? I read it completely different. I assumed that you're just a big Lakers fan and in honor <laughs> yes. of Kobe Bryant, like you just added that to your middle name and that's not at all close to what happened, but that's how I assumed it was. Well, you know, Kobe was my nickname in college. So I had a roommate also named Kristen. So I was Kobe. So that, you know, way back. Yes. 
there's that's, there's a connection. That's a good. I mean, like I was born in Philadelphia. Kobe was born like five minutes away from where I was. So, uh, like I feel the love that you refer to that in college. Where'd you go to college? I went to Dort College. Now it's Dort University in my hometown, Sioux Center, Iowa. So you had to marry a Dutch guy because that school sounds very Dutch. Pretty much, yes. That was the appropriate thing to do. Okay. And so you couldn't have graduated without marrying a Dutchman. And- well, here's the thing. I was you know, kind of renegade. I did not get married in college. I was not engaged upon leaving college, which is why I ended up going to graduate school because what else is a girl to do? And so we actually re-met a few years later. He had gone off to grad school. I'd gone off to grad school. And then we reconnected. And, uh, and yeah, that's that. It sounds like it's worked out. Yeah, so far we're 20 years, yeah. Yeah, well, congratulations, I'm on 18, (laughs) so a couple years behind you. But like to graduate a Christian college without being married, that's basically the starter set to be a feminist. I don't Exactly, I don't know what other path there really was for me. No, no, you you ended up there. Let me ask you uh, like a real, this is gonna be a tough question. How how do you feel when you've been described as bookish (laughs) and slight? What... (laughs) I, like I'm not saying that's how I'm describing you, but I just read The New Yorker and they said that you were bookish and slight. Could you please interpret that for me? Well, first off, I could do a lot worse. That's that's what I, uh, oh. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, bookish. Uh, that totally works for me. It, it, you know, I think it's probably maybe referring to my glasses. Um, I, also my demeanor. I, you know, I, I'm totally good with it. Slight. I feel like that's a bit of a stretch. Um, I, I feel like it's more aspirational. I, I'm hoping to take up running again, you know, post-pandemic and all, but um, I can live with it. I could definitely live with it. So, yeah, I'm cool. I'm cool with that description. Okay. It's actually in my bio now. Wow, that's... Congratulations. <laughs> Bookish. I, it's fitting. I mean, you've you've written books, I'm so I mean... And I don't know what else. You know, I'm, I'm proud. I own it. Yeah. You, you have books. Like, I'm looking at books over your shoulder right now, so yeah. it seems fitting for that to be your descriptor. I mean, bookish. you could say nerdy, but I thought bookish was a little bit more, you know, sophisticated, PC. more New yeah. Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. And when... <laughs> yeah. How many people in uh, Sioux Fall... Where is that? Sioux Center. In, Sioux Center. Sioux, <laughs> what state is that again? I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, so Sioux Iowa, Falls, that's Iowa. Sioux Falls is South Dakota. That's the big city. I'm from Sioux Center in Iowa, the small town. Mm. Hey, hey, here's the thing. 6,000, Iowa, yeah. Iowa's got good wrestling. So maybe good wrestling and, okay. and bookish people. You're not a big <laughs> Iowa Hawkeye wrestling fan? I, I, I am no. not. No, no. What? Have you ever been to a wrestling match? I have not. I I've heard of them. I've seen pictures. I just, it just, I don't know. I, I wasn't my how, thing. How can you write a book entitled Jesus and John Wayne without doing some, whether professional or amateur wrestling research? Maybe that's uh, the, the sequel. The the follow-up has something to do with wrestling. I read about boys wrestling, uh, definitely. So Doug Wilson, right, picture of his cover. So I looked at that picture of boys wrestling. That's as far as I've I, I've gone. I don't, I don't want, like, I wrestled in high school. I don't want to be associated with whatever he's doing. So I, <laughs> I rescind that question and I choose to plead the fifth and move on. I don't, like, no, you, you won. You stumped me on that. I don't want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> Doug Wilson, <laughs> drop that name, tends to have that effect. Yes. Oh, wow. The, the guy who took the pro slavery argument, that's not mm-hmm. a good argument. You, you tip, like, that's not, like, when you're picking teams, like, I, I don't want to be in a team with the guy who's making that statement. No. You know, a, a lot of evangelical men didn't make that choice, interestingly enough, you know, um, so so good for you. Yeah, I, I feel like history doesn't look too fondly on, and by history, I mean like two seconds after you said it, like that doesn't look fondly. It's just like, it's just the wrong take. Like, I don't know. Here, okay, let's, let's talk about the book. We already jumped into this. For Father's Day, mm-hmm. I give my dad... A copy of Jesus and John Wayne. Well done. Do you have a special like Father's Day edition, like a leather one that comes with like a pocket knife? Because I feel like that's something to consider. You know, um, my publisher didn't really go in for all that stuff. Um, well, Christian publishers do. I went outside of Christian publishing um, with this mm. book. But, you know, I get books from that I'm, I, that I'm asked to promote from Christian publishers. And, yeah, it comes with, like, uh, flavored teas and coffee mugs and all kinds of really fun stuff. And then I, I thought we had a real missed opportunity there with Jesus and John Wayne. We really needed to put together a box and, uh, you know, some, yep. yeah, pocket knife, absolutely. Uh, you know, maybe... 
decorative wall hangings of guns, six shooters, things like that, really popular in these circles. So a um, real missed opportunity there. I'm, I'm yep. hoping to do better on the next book. I'm not trying to tell you how to run your life, but uh, <laughs> like it, it's a good idea I gave you. So maybe you just I'll talk to my better. publisher. Yeah, yeah, you should do that. So I give this book to my dad and he says like it's just like described his like childhood and like his life and you just wrote about his whole experience. And I'm going to be honest, like the the John Wayne like I don't like connect to John Wayne like I like I've there's um my wife's uncle has this ranch where we hunt and there's like the bunkhouse where the guys stay and there's a picture of John Wayne on the wall. And so like I like I know who he is, but I don't get that. But when you talked about William Wallace, I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm here for that. I'm if here if for I that. could have squeezed uh, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart into the title of this book, I would have. I just it didn't have the same ring to it. But um, so I, I settled on Jesus and John Wayne. But yeah, for for our generation, it's it's William Wallace all the way. Yeah, I mean the title's pretty spot on. It's great, but yeah, William Wallace is it, so William Wallace is like functionally the same character that John Wayne in all of his different like adaptations and presentations is right. Yeah, yeah, he's the hero. He's the hero. He'll use violence to you know pursue righteousness in order to protect uh, womanhood. All those things. So yeah, it mm-hmm. fits. Okay, so I, uh, if you haven't read the book now, like you need to go read. It. I've had so many people say, hey, how, "How come you haven't had?" Uh, the book, like, how can you haven't had that on the podcast? And uh, I guess because you didn't have a Christian publisher, they didn't send me a copy a year and a half ago when it came out, yeah. which is also why you don't have the knife. So those two things coincide. Anyway. It's a loss, yes. Yeah, it is. Um, do, are you an Enneagram person? Can I ask you that? Is that, is that a- <laughs> okay, you can ask. So here's the thing. I, um, I'm the only white Christian woman I know who has not done that. Um, people mm. tell me I'm an eight. I have to believe them. Um, mm. But I have not. One of these days, I suppose. Um, now it's kind of a badge of pride, you know? Like, I never got my ears pierced when I was in, in grade school, and I, um, I don't know my Enneagram number. Okay. Okay, here's but the next But go ahead, idea. you can, you can diagnose. No, I, I, I'm not going to die. I already have, but I'm not going to say it to you because <laughs> like my Enneagram friends would judge me really strong. Here, okay, first idea was the pocket knife. Second idea is this, purity culture, but it's Enneagram purity culture. Ooh, write yeah, the book, write the book. Yeah. Again, like I'm, I'm just giving you ideas. I'm oh, here is this for, for you. me? Because yes, yeah. this is super marketable. Could, but I would have to, yeah, I'd have to figure out the enneagram. But there's, I, you know, I think, no, I think whole, you maybe missed this by about four years. No, but if you started up like where you could say there's a purity culture for people who don't give in to the impurity of enneagram, because once you enneagram, you never can be pure again. So anyway, I'm just saying. <laughs> so just like your enneagram virginity. That's what I'm talking about. So anyway, um, here's. So I'm reading the book and I'm trying to figure out your energy and all that. And I, like, I, I, I'm, I, the book is something I needed to read. And I like, like we're for, like, I'm rooting for you. Obviously the pocket knife, I'm for you. I'm giving you good <laughs> ideas. Uh, like the book is not like, it's depressing. Like, it's not yes. like you go, oh, this is great. And then like at the end, it's just like, if things can be done, they can be undone. <laughs> cool. Cool. <laughs> That's, so that didn't really do it for you, did it? No, I, no. Like, see, I feel like I needed like a little twist at the end, you know? Like, so let I me tell know. you where that line came from. Uh, it, it was coerced. It was coerced <laughs> because I came to the end of the book, and I mean, we were on this this really, really tight deadline to get it out in advance of the twenty twenty election. It was intense. I was putting in eighteen hour days. You know, my editor was working weekends, and we were trying to get this thing turned around. And we we're almost done, almost done. And then he <laughs> you get this email saying, "You know, Kristen." This book is really depressing. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. you know. And then he said, you can't leave your readers here. And I thought, okay, that's a problem. And so I, uh, he's like, no, you have to give them something in this conclusion. And so I went back, looked over the book, and I wrote him. I was like, I, I've got nothing. Like, this is, I'm depressed too. This is where this, is where this story brings us. Um, so he said, okay, I respect that. And then a couple of days later, he emails a guy and like, Kristen, just give us anything. And so that's what I gave him this last sentence. And it really felt, it, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed to send that email. And he's like, fine, I'll take it. And that was that. And and it was, you know, it really did feel feeble. It felt like it wasn't enough. What's interesting is just how much uh, readers 
are clinging to that last sentence because it's also true. Um, evangelicals in particular tend to think that, you know, a lot is, is kind of God ordained. It's just the way things are, the way things have been meant to be. And history shows us that no, it's not the case. And once you can see how things came to be, that, that situates you to say, yeah, you know what? Maybe this isn't how we want things and maybe we can, um, we can change things going forward. So I think it's powerful to some people. It still felt like not enough. Um, I felt, I felt overwhelmed by the time I finished the book. Overwhelmed because why? Because I saw how deep this all went, right? I saw how far back this went. I saw how deeply entrenched this was. I saw what kind of money was behind this, what kind of just power alliances. And I just thought, oh, this is here to stay. I I think early on, I thought I can change something here, right? Shine a light on this and I can change this. Then just just months into my research, I, I abandoned all hope of that. And I thought, no, I can just testify. I can just tell this story. I'm going to hold it up for everybody to see, but this is not going to change. Why don't you think it's going to change? Uh, again, just seeing you know, change is hard. Change is hard, uh, and it's hard to force. It's hard to make it happen. And uh, you know, I, I I understand how how power operates. I understand how institutions work. I will say that I'm more optimistic now because I've seen change on an individual level. That's really been quite astounding. You know, I've heard from hundreds and hundreds of of readers. I mean, well over a thousand at this point. And, and they testify to their own change. Um, what I'm not seeing is any institutional change to speak of. I'm seeing a lot of um, retrenchment. I'm seeing a lot of institutions double down to protect the status quo. I'm seeing a lot of people losing their jobs who are trying to challenge the status quo. And so I'm optimistic on an individual level. I'm pretty pessimistic when it comes to um, broader changes in kind of uh, evangelical culture writ large. Uh, I could be wrong. Historians are, are not great at predicting the future. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen. But just looking back, you know, generations of this, uh, this ideology being being um, promoted, being sustained, being embraced, being cultivated in, in the younger generation. Uh, it's It's been incredibly effective. And so yeah. there's a lot of undoing that has to be done here. Yeah. So we've spoken in kind of pronouns like this, uh, yes. Th- this stuff, like if you were to, to say like what the antecedent to that pronoun is mm-hmm. in a quick summation for listeners who haven't uh, like read the book sure. because they're terrible people, they haven't read the book. Yes. Um, what would you describe it as? So Jesus and John Wayne is essentially a history of white evangelical masculinity and militarism. And um, so placing masculinity at the center of the story, it really looks how over the past uh, 75 years or so, evangelicals have embraced a faith that um, is a kind of us versus them, embraced a militant faith, and uh, gender roles are at the heart of that. This masculine protector uh, and a, a kind of sweet, vulnerable femininity goes hand in hand with that. And the task of a courageous Christian man is to defend faith, family, and nation, and um, all that that entails. Yeah. So what I appreciate about the book is, uh, like I said, the John Wayne stuff, like that's like history to me. I don't really understand it, and I'm not a historian like you. And so I I just kind of assume where we are today is where it's always been, and your book kind of shined a light on how we got to where we are right now. And like even the the basic idea that men are breadwinners and women are at home, like I just assume like that's like that's just how things have always been. And uh, as a historian, I feel like your answer is no, it hasn't always been that way. So a lot of the stuff that I just assumed it is what it what it is. You're saying like there's there's more to this the story. So I I really appreciate what your work has done to help me see some of this stuff that I was just oblivious to. Um, But one of the questions that keeps coming up to me is like. Every iteration of Christianity is a form of cultural Christianity. Yes. Like Christianity that has been like <clears throat> uh, tied to the culture that it's in. And like anyone who's read the Bible, like whenever you're making hard questions about, okay, what do we do with this text? We go, is this a cultural thing or is this eternal thing? And like you go all the way back to like Paul's writing and it's explicitly cultural. Yeah. And so you get, but, but you get today, like fast forward and you go, okay, um, <clears throat> what's cultural Christianity? Is it, um, <clears throat> me not being able to talk because something's in my throat. Is it, um, is it like Duck Dynasty, like the right. Robertson family? That's one type. You have uh, like Billy Graham in the Oval Office, like decades before. Is it like Obama quoting Reinhold Niebuhr while also being best friends with Jay-Z and Beyonce? Is it, you know, pastors going to pray with Trump? Or is it like other, like Christian leaders? Like I think um, 
the week after Rachel Hudd Evans was at like Obama's prayer breakfast, she was on the podcast. And it's like all of these things are like Christianity and culture, like enmeshed. I'm not saying they're all the same. I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong. I'm just like, it's, it's all there. And so how do we ever untangle Christianity f- from that? Mm-hmm. Well, first, I, I think we we don't have to fully. We can't fully. And and you're right. This isn't just a white evangelical thing. Uh, I think this is a human thing. I think this is. I mean, if you're a person of faith, you can say it's a it's a it's it's a created thing. You know, this is a, a how how God created humanity, and and that we are receiving you know the gospel truth, but always in our in our cultural and historical circumstances. And you know, I, I read some readings long ago on um, missiology and just understanding. You know, like Leslie Newbigin, uh, the gospel in a pluralist society. And so on, and just um, uh, scholars of missiology like Andrew Walls, who who give us the kind of vocabulary to talk about this really well. And so it's not something to grieve and to lament; it's something to be aware of. Uh, but what's happened is that usually um, the kind of dominant group, so in in the story that I tell, it would be you know, white American Christians, tend to be oblivious to the ways in which their Christianity is enculturated. Whereas when you look at, say, African American Christians, you can see that very clearly. When you look at, you know, non Western Christians, you can see that when you look at your own faith, um, particularly white evangelicals have had a tendency to um, just see their own faith as generic Christianity, as traditional Christianity, as not shaped by their cultural ideals. And I think that's why this book is so powerful, because as a work of history, it shows change over time. It shows that even in white American evangelicalism, uh, Christian nationalism wasn't always a widely held value, that gender roles looked different. And, you know, just so much change over time. And so as soon as you you can show that, it becomes clear to white evangelicals themselves just how much what has been packaged and sold to them as gospel truth, as just plain old Christianity, is in fact um, layered with you know, all these cultural uh, values. And I think that's what's been so powerful about this book. For people who have lived this life, who just thought this is just Christianity, are now able to see, oh, <laughs> there's a lot more that's been added to Christianity, added to the gospel, or possibly has distorted uh, Christianity. Yeah, and it makes me go, okay, well, how do I differentiate my culture from my Christianity? And it seems like that's an impossible task. It's, it's like a Sisyphean feat of like, every day I'm going to try to do this, but I'm going to fail like every night. You they know, don't you stress do it. over it, I'd say. Uh, but the best thing you could do is um, be in, in conversation and frequent conversation and community with, with Christians who are different from you. All right, that's that's the 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 best way to realize your own uh, kind of a cultural formation is to uh, and not just, you know, invite a, a, a you know, a friend over for coffee once in a while, but to immerse yourself in other spaces, in another Christian spaces and to learn from other traditions and to, you know, build those relationships to read across uh, you know, cultural and racial and ethnic differences. These are, you know, pretty simple things really if you make a habit of them and 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 you know, that's one way that you can become more aware of your own culture. I mean, the, the way that I first was kind of introduced to what it means to be an American and, and my own cultural baggage was um, back in high school, I became an exchange student. And so I lived in Germany for a year, spoke German, lived with a German family, went to a German high school. And it was a brutal year. It was an amazing year. And I came back deeply curious about American history and American culture. And that's what really led me on the path mm-hmm. to become a U.S. historian, because I could now see my own country with eyes um, that made me just incredibly curious about how we came to be this way. You know, why do we fly the flag so proudly? They don't in Germany with good reason. You know, why do we have these these views on war, on military? And uh, and so that's really, um, that was formative for me. And, and, you know, you don't have to be an exchange student and leave your own you know country for a year to experience this. There are all different ways to put yourself in, in conversation with people who um, are different. Yeah. And I, and I would add that uh, I think your book is a helpful resource, even though it's written by a white American Christian, that it gives you insight into things that were just kind of assumed to be, like, I, I think you said, it, like, we just assume, like, this is just Christianity. Like, we're, yeah. we, you know, we're just like the, th- this is like the baseline. Everything else is like a, a topping that you've added to it. But we're, you know, it, there's just as much of a a mixture and a concoction of what's around us with what we do that, it, I don't know. This is why it's d- depressing to me because you go like a- every iteration. And again, maybe like you should have, I, again, here's the th- third grade idea. I feel like they're all downhill from like the, the knife was the best idea I had. <laughs> but like, 
you know, I do with my daughters. We play this Rosebud Thord game every night. And so it's like, what was your high? What was your low? What do you look forward to? Like maybe just like a little, like a little uh, a rose, like from each, like, hey, there's one nice thing about <laughs> um, um, Billy Graham and his best friend um, Eisenhower. Like maybe just like one little nice thing. Like, hey, he wore a green suit and he dropped to one knee and said a prayer in the lawn. Like that, that's a funny picture. Like imagine yeah. a preacher in a nasty, ugly green suit taking a Kaepernick knee on the lawn to say a prayer and you're just like, or a Tebow, whichever football player you like better, you know, I don't know. It's just yeah. Amazing. You know, I think that being aware of our cultural influences doesn't necessarily entail critique. And I'm saying that because today I've been tweeting about live, laugh, love things, which is the topic of my next book. And uh, yeah, there's a great TikTok uh, making the rounds today. And the, there, there's a bit of defensiveness of, you know, what now it's, uh, you know, you're better than me because I have, you know, words on my walls that say live, laugh, love, or, you know, what, you know, it, it, this is all criticism, right? Just calling it out as criticism. Well, first, you know, we have to be able to laugh at ourselves, but, but also, and, you know, and to it, live at ourselves. <laughs> and love so much love mm-hmm. love is always good um so it's you know it it really does uh, it, it, it's just noticing it's saying how does this work what does this do and you can appreciate it and you can critique it and you can actually do it at the same time right you can you can say this is so my culture you know i am i am a, a very much a, i'm a white christian middle-aged midwestern mom who drives a minivan and i embrace that (laughs) you know like this is who i am and i'm not trying to be something else um but i'm also a cultural historian so i have i have this kind of toolkit where i can i can understand all of those things for what they are you know i like you too because of course i would like you too i'm a progressive christian in her 40s and so i like you too that just goes with the territory right and and bookish bookish yep There you are. So like none of that, I can laugh at that, but mostly it's just identifying and saying there is something distinct about this. And, um, and it does some things that are great. And it does, it, 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 it connects me to some people. It distances me from other people, right? And these are just the kind of questions that historians ask. How, how does that connect me to kind of mainstream dominant culture? How does it distance me from those spaces? You know, what does it do? And it's okay to ask these questions and not assume that this kind of critical analysis means negative critique. It might, it, it could, and it sometimes does, but it can also just be, huh, how does this work? Yeah, I think that's fair. Except when you guys go after Chip and Joanna Gaines, I feel like that you you should you're going to be canceled for that once people realize uh, you uh, and a- Allison is that her name? Allison Barr, yeah. Beth Allison so, Barr, yes, yeah. No, no you guys are done. Like you I guys know, are done. I know. We are we are so going to be canceled. And the thing is, like going after it's appreciation. It's you know what? If Joanna Gaines wants to redo my house. I will say absolutely, and I will love that style. Whatever she does to my house will be a heck of a lot better than what it is right now. All uh, right, so like you could you can appreciate this. You could totally you can even aspire. Like you know, if I actually had a little bit more time and money, I would have a house that was closer to that because I'm also a white Christian woman, and so that's my my aesthetic. Uh, although I'm also the bookish type, so a little bit of a critique in there. But no, I mean you, you can do this. You can move in these spaces, and you can say and and you know talk about Chip and Joanna Gaines, and I'm not supposed to because my publicist will be mad but um you know next book and all but uh what's really interesting there is you know she is not a white christian woman uh and so we can talk about race we can talk about you know what this means we can talk about um you know who she is what her business does we can talk about what meaning her products have for her primary consumers you know those are the kinds of questions that you can ask so it's not good bad it's not you know blasting or praising it's just huh what is this what's happening here how does this work Mm-hmm. Uh, for the record, I am not uh, supporting or promoting any book that goes after the gains, <laughs> yeah. and so you're Lovely on your own. Lovely people. Next week. Lovely yeah, people. You're, you're on your own. Like I live in Texas. Like I've, I've got to pay the bills here. Um, what? So you've obviously offended a lot of people. Um, <laughs> um, like let's just like you have obviously. I assume that they're not like always kind comments in your uh, Twitter post. Uh, Ted not Cruz was li- upset. Yes, Ted Cruz was upset. <laughs> Ted Cruz. Oh, yes. yes, I saw that. Yes, I saw that. Um, what is it about some people that enable them to hear the critique and maybe critique's the wrong word, to, to hear the full story about where they come from? What do you think allows some people to hear that and go, okay, I can uh, learn from this, uh, live and laugh as well. Uh, <laughs> but other people, they they just, they can't. What do, what do you think? Like, because you've obviously like made a lot of people hate you. Um, <laughs> you know... 
That, I, I don't, I, I, I'm really curious. I'm really curious. I, that was a question as I was writing this book, as I, you know, after the book is released, uh, I've been surprised by how many people who have been deeply immersed in these spaces who still are, have been so open to this self critique, have been so open to, um, uh, examining their own complicity and propping up, mm-hmm. uh, this whole culture and, and this whole system, really. I, I did not expect this many at all. So I'm actually, you know, I expected a lot of hate coming my way. I expected a lot of pretty brutal critique. Uh, so did my publisher's lawyer. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> Instead, like, so I've been actually really, really surprised at the response, which is way more positive than I ever imagined, particularly from evangelical spaces. So kudos to all those evangelicals who have received this book with such humility. I think what's happened, uh, you know, I think the last few years have been rough. And I think that there have been many evangelicals who have both been immersed in this um, kind of Jesus and John Wayne Christianity. You know, they've been shaped by this um, uh, kind of militant Christian manhood. They've been shaped by purity culture, by these gender ideals. But they've also been reading the scriptures and they've also been shaped with by things like, you know, Jesus and Jesus says, love your neighbor and Jesus says, love your enemies. And so they've been holding these things in tension. And that worked for a long time particularly if you find yourself in privileged spaces and in, in, in kind of tight-knit communities. And then the last four years broke that all open. Right, the last four years showed a lot of evangelicals kind of a, an uglier side to their faith, um, to their communities, and, and it brought some things to the surface. And so I think a lot of readers had a lot of questions, right? Wait, this isn't who we are, except it is who we are, and how can this be? And so I think a lot of people were just at a moment where they were ready to receive a book like this that explains uh, a story that's very familiar to them and that can also answer that question of how, you know, how can we be holding these things in tension as a community? How can we be saying love your neighbor on Sunday morning and still supporting these policies that, you know, are are anti-immigrant or, um, you know, uh, how, how can we, um, you know, refuse to embrace, uh, you know, racial justice in this moment? You know, aren't, aren't, isn't this what we do, but it isn't. And so I think it's just a clarifying book in that moment. And then there are other people who are deeply invested in, uh, in this system whose livelihoods are, you know, um, linked to promoting white Christian patriarchy and who um, whose identity is closely linked to it. And they're not letting go necessarily. But I mean, I hear from way more of the the, the people who are opening up than I do the really harsh critics. Um, they tend to just, you know, write things and uh, <laughs> go to Fox News and stuff. Hmm. <clears throat> okay. Uh, I'm just going to leave that one there. There's a lot to, to respond to that. <laughs> The the way you connected stuff on the Cold War, uh, Billy Graham, Vietnam, uh, the introduction of Focus on the Family, and how it was a response to like the. It, it seems like people were dumbfounded after Vietnam, and like authority was questioned. So let's double down and let's focus on family and raise strong boys who can fight for our country and like all that stuff. I, I no idea. Like it was just very fascinating to me because it predates me. Um, Let's talk about something that I have more familiarity with, and uh, let's talk about um, uh, Promise Keepers. Yeah. And some of the stuff about uh, masculinity that you discuss in the book. Now, it's a, I'm not saying that, like it's too long. I'm saying that it's not a short book, but I feel like when <laughs> I, I read, like I didn't mean that in a mean way. It, it sounded that way, but okay, it was The original draft was 60,000 words longer, so I think you should appreciate how short this book actually is. Was that like 100... 20,000 words, 140,000 words? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's... Yeah, it, I mean, it, it was 100... I so said this book is 100,000 words long, and the original draft was 160,000 words. Hmm. My editor doesn't oh. know that. I try to only divulge that on spaces where I think he's not going to listen into this podcast. I think I'm good. So he doesn't actually know. He The first draft he got was only 20,000 words over. He has no idea that, you know, two months before I sent it off, it was actually 60 over. Wow. Yeah, that's that. That's a lot. Um, that that's a lot of words. But th- where I was going with that uh, before I uh, insulted before I interrupted to, you, God. Uh, no, no, you. I just offended you, and then you came back. But you're probably an enneagram eight, so this is like your love language. We're like we're cool. Like I, that's you know totally. Whatever. But um, which isn't what I thought you were initially in the enneagram. But nevertheless, what I was going with was the phrase toxic masculine masculinity wasn't. I didn't read it in the book. Was it in there? It no. wasn't. Okay. Good so eye. This two good eyes right here. Mm-hmm. They both work very well. Um, it wasn't in there, but obviously there's a lot of talk about masculinity. 
why did you not use that phrase, which is almost ubiquitous in conversations yeah. about this subject matter? It just felt lazy, honestly. You know, uh, toxic masculinity oh. is a phrase <laughs> that communicates. I like that answer. I love that answer. This is lazy. <laughs> It communicates really well to people who get it, right? Who like a toxic masculinity. So I have no trouble, you know, when people use toxic masculinity to talk about this book. And yeah, that that's what I'm describing. Um, it's a phrase that resonates really deeply with people who already agree that toxic masculinity is a thing and yes. that it's a problem. Um, you know, as a historian, it, first of all, it's it's a it's a phrase of relatively recent origin. So I'm not going to use it and apply to apply it to the past. Uh, I just wanted to use kind of more normal words. I just wanted to describe what was happening as it was happening and then describe, uh, you know, what were the implications. And I didn't need to fall back on the toxic masculinity. I mean, if I had started using that, I would have been using it on every page. And so I just um, I just decided it wasn't it wasn't a phrase that communicated uh, well and, uh, and it wouldn't really help me tell the story I needed to tell. Yeah. The work that I do as a pastor is to not speak to left or right in such a way that the other is excluded. Mm-hmm. And it seems that if you would have used that, it would have been even a bigger, just like, it, it's like a shibboleth. Like if you, if you hear that word, some of us are like, oh, that's great. And some of us are, oh, you're the worst. I hate you because you're yeah. an X, Y, Z, you know? And so just, yeah, lazy. That's the right word for it. But obviously we talk a lot about masculinity and <clears throat> but Promise Keepers was a place for many evangelical men where masculinity was like encouraged. It wasn't like that, like the, down the road iteration of Mark Driscoll. Like it wasn't that stuff, but Mm -hmm. it was positive, but it fell apart when they talked about race. Yeah. Is that fair Mm -hmm. to say? Like, is that the right historical read on it? Yeah, you know, there, first of all, Promise Keepers is a grab bag. There, there were so many, that's the point I make in, in the book. There, there are so many contradictory teachings that were kind of held together within the Promise Keepers movement. Even, you know, with the, you know, essays in the same book that was marketed by Promise Keepers would kind of, you know, uh, contradict each other and different emphases. So, uh, Promise Keepers, for those who experienced it, was different things to different people. For some, it was a step back from a harsher patriarchy that maybe they had grown up with or that their father had. Had modeled, and so it really was a softer, gentler uh, masculinity, and that's legit. And, and it's important to acknowledge that. For some, it was still politicized, very much tied up with the religious right. For others, not at all. Uh, you know, for some, it was uh, uh, it, it was just so many different things. Uh, for some, it was just you know bonding with the guys from their church. You know, you go and, and you know, take a bus together, and you know, fathers and sons, and it was a maybe where friendships were forged. And so, all of those experiences are legit. Um, but it was, it was just so many different things. Uh, and then it was about racial reconciliation. And there's just really, you know, interesting, uh, research into that and that it, it was a genuine cause, authentic a commitment on the part of the leadership, um, Bill McCartney and others to pursue racial reconciliation at that moment. And it was also deeply resented by many white men who attended these events. And McCartney himself and others have, have credited that emphasis on racial reconciliation with the um, uh, decline of the movement. And that's not the whole story. And in the book I talk about, there's other things that were going on there too. And it's hard to sustain a movement of that size. And, you know, people spent all their money on the national conference, so they weren't attending the local ones. And there were a lot of these things. But it's also true that a lot of men were kind of sick of hearing about uh, race, even though, you know, the emphasis on racial reconciliation was just that it was not, um, for the most part, uh, a kind of call for pursuing uh, systemic change for pursuing, you know, real racial justice. It was more of a white men, you should be friends with black men and black men, you too should be friends with white men and we need forgiveness all around. Um, you know, not to totally downplay it because it was certainly a whole lot more than most white evangelicals and frankly, most white people were doing in the 1990s when it came to the issue of race. Yeah, it was, to compare it to today's standard, it wouldn't really be fair to it because back then it was... I would say it's revolutionary. Like it was, it was unique. Maybe that's a better word, not revolutionary. It was yeah. unique to what was around it. And as a pastor at, at a church, my first job out of school in Florida, uh, the guys would go to Promise Keepers. And I remember one of the ladies would say to my wife, she goes, we like when our men go to Promise Keepers because they come yeah. back better husbands. And you're like- Do the dishes, yeah. Like, and that's like, that's a great thing. And It's a good thing, yeah. And so but, I feel like, 
Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it is a good thing. And, and, and many women, you know, would say that there are other women who would say, uh-uh, this is not cool. Also, again, it depends what the man, you know, where he came from, what he took away from yep. it and what his, you know, his wife ha- happened to think about it. So I think, you know, because this is so deeply personal to so many men, there are men who, who will come to me and say, promise keepers did this and this and this for me. And it made me into a stronger Christian and it made me into a better father. And I'm like, okay, great. And uh, that may absolutely be true. I have no reason to say it's not. Uh, but, you know, what were some of the other implications? What were some of the other effects of um, promise keepers and this belief system that was being perpetuated, but even also the ideals that you embraced? Uh, and, you know, are you the best person to, you know, maybe you need to get some other uh, opinions too. So not just your wife, but, you know, if they're um, particularly for white Christian men, you know, well, what do some of the uh, black Christian men in your circles have to say about uh, promise keepers and their teachings and racial reconciliation? And in fact, there are a lot of black Christian critics of promise keepers at the time and since. And, uh, you know, those are the things that um, just to, to hold together personal experience and, and, and yet to keep in mind that your story, while it is your story and it's authentic and legit, is part of a larger story as well. And, and that's what history can do is, is help us understand how our individual stories fit within these larger stories. And to do that, we have to bring in other voices that are not our own. And only then can we start to more fully understand what our own actions have meant to us and to others. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. One of the things that Promise Keepers did for some was it was a way for them to approach Christianity um, that for them, it felt like more in tune to who they were. Um, And I don't mean to sound like Mark Driscoll here, uh, but, and anytime, again, like anytime you start a sentence that way, it's also never going to end in a good sentence. But like, (laughs) I, I assume... You've were you interviewed by the like the downfall of Marcel? yeah yeah okay, I'm on I mean, there in a few episodes. Yeah. I mean yeah I remember that because I've listened to them all. <laughs> uh, I like I did remember that very much. So there's it was my favorite. It very was my, memorable. It was, it was my Super favorite good. part. Mm-hmm. It was so good that I, I felt that like it stood by itself. <laughs> um, but like and that's why I didn't know because I was like oh Christine's so great there. Um, but Driscoll saying like church isn't doesn't connect to men and like I've. I feel like there is some truth to that, mm-hmm. where men feel like the idea, gosh, I hate when I said that, singing love songs to Jesus is very unnatural for a lot of dudes, and yeah, in, in a certain type of dude doesn't connect to that, and I, it seems like there is just like an absence, like an abscess that stuff grew in mm-hmm. that, that connected to a need, but it wasn't like an ideal solution to it, but it still acknowledged a hole that was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we could also say that um, a certain type of women don't connect well to singing love songs about Jesus either. All right. So we're already, you know, kind of working with gendered assumptions here that, yeah. you know, the problem is that your religion is too feminine. I mean, this is absolutely, you know, the feminization of Christianity and, and people have been lamenting and grieving and, and combating the feminization of American Christianity for um, almost 200 years now. Um, so it's a thing. Um, and, and so we have to talk about, okay, well, well, what do we mean by femininity, right? And, and, and yes, we just talked about how all Christianity is enculturated, right? And so, um, you know, maybe this uh, particular uh, enculturation of Christianity that we're now taught, uh, you know, calling feminine, maybe it's also not good for women, because maybe it is kind of corrupting this uh, biblical uh, teaching. And maybe it's, it's not good for men either. And maybe it's uncomfortable for men, but, and maybe men are able to say, yeah, this isn't for me, dude. And then women are not able to say that because if you say, yeah, this really isn't for me, then where do you go? You're, you're, you know, ostracized from the women's Bible study and there's no place for you. And I've heard from so many women for whom this Christianity, this kind of cultural Christianity and the gendered expectations were absolutely stifling, but they didn't know there was another option. It was just Christianity and it's this or nothing. And so you, you just suck it up. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's a fair point. Like that's. (laughs) That's good. Like, it's not just men who don't connect. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Um, (laughs) Let me tell you something you and I have in common. Um, John Eldridge was on the podcast a second time a few weeks ago, and he hung up on me. Um, I feel like he's done that to you in his heart, probably, after reading your book. Now, he hung up on me actually for a good reason. I was on sabbatical, and... He's like, dude, you need, you shouldn't be doing this. I was like, what are you talking about? And he goes, you, you need to stop. And so he hangs, which I thought was a nice touch. Anyway, so really, like, hey, John, we're cool. We're cool, John, if you're listening. But he's probably not cool with you. Um, one of the things that 
a friend of mine named Richard Beck. I don't know if you know who that is, but you should. He's, he's great. Mm-hmm. He has this observation that at the church he's a part of in West Texas, where he now serves as a, an elder, that if you would go up to the guys there, and it, it was a weird church in that uh, a lot of people are university people, and so you have like highly educated people who would lean politically right, and then you have the county is the highest voting for Trump County in all the country. And so you have like this weird like university, you know, liberals, and then you have like mm-hmm. Texans who are not liberals. Anyway, and he said, if, if you would go to the church and say the name of the book, Wild at Heart, it would function as uh, a shibboleth. Mm-hmm. And the way that you responded to that says a whole bunch. And one of the things that his observation was is that a lot of it is an education thing. That his take is that if you have a more educated, a person who spent more time in the academy is going to be more comfortable with poetry and that sort of stuff. And someone who's not is going to be more disconnected from that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, in, in that situation, it makes a ton of sense. Um, I will say that, uh, and that also makes sense in terms of kind of elite levels of education, right? So yeah, if you're talking PhDs, if you're talking, so so when I start talking about Wild at Heart and, you know, other historians of evangelicalism before me tended to focus more, you know, with some exceptions, but focus quite a bit on kind of intellectual history, on the history of theology, on institutions, on churches, fuller seminary and the like, you know, and that's their evangelicalism because they are also evangelicals and that is their evangelicalism right these elite bastions and then i would talk about wild at heart and they just look at me like what are you even talking about right or they didn't even and most of these are men male scholars so they you know i say have you ever been to a christian bookstore they had not because that's where their wives go right you know and so there's these yeah. um these different worlds so there's a, a kind of elite or you know respectable evangelicalism or so that doesn't really go for this stuff not nearly as much and these are the critics and these are the people who are at wheaton college or you know writing at christianity today for the most part um that's not really who I'm talking about. But I also wouldn't say it's it's uneducated. We're talking about a lot of college educated people in professional um, uh, uh, spaces. Uh, we're talking very much middle class here. You know, think Colorado Springs and yep. uh, suburban uh, white uh, wealthy evangelicals really go for this kind of stuff too. And that you know the megachurch um, population, and that's really where this uh, this literature finds a home, um, you know, lower classes, lower education, they're not buying books and reading books at the same rate as people, you know, men's in these, these megachurch men's groups. That's really the, the primary audience, um, that, that I'm talking about here. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the critique from, uh, uh, James K.A. Smith, who yeah. said, uh, a lot of what, you know, Eldridge described as from creation would be what we call like consequences of the fall. And I don't think we've always connected yeah. the dots yeah. Yeah. You know, and I'm a Calvinist myself. And uh, so I, I I grew up with a pretty rigorous <laughs> understanding of the fall and, uh, and the ripple effects for all of human society, through human structures, through human relationships. You know, it sounds very structural and it is. Uh, so that's that was really my religious formation. I actually find it really interesting that you you talked to Eldridge because I've been curious. And, and I wrote this book as a historian and uh, my previous book is more traditional history and that all the people I was writing about were dead. So I didn't uh, get to do interviews or anything. Um, this book, I, I followed pretty much traditional historical method. I did some interviews, but really just looking at sources and then looking at reception. And I thought about, you know, should I interview Aldridge? And and I, I, um, I, I, I'm not sure if it was the right choice not to. I didn't want to. Um, I mean, I knew at, at a certain point that what I was going to be writing was was a fairly critical take on his the legacy of his work. So I didn't want to kind of waylay him and, you know, like, Hey, can I talk about the legacy of your work? And then, and then have, you know, Jesus and John Wayne come out. And so I wanted to kind of respect that. Um, but I also, you know, I, I wondered how much he, um, intended and what of these consequences were unintended consequences. But I did watch him closely over, you know, several years and I didn't see him walk this stuff back. Um, I saw him continue to, to make a lot of money off of uh, the wild at heart industry. And, uh, you know, uh, not really if, if, if his work was being misconstrued, um, I didn't see him objecting to that. Uh, so that's what I can say as a, as a scholar, as a historian who was kind of watching this play out. Um, so I was really curious when the Washington Post uh, published a piece on the book and its reception in evangelical circles last week. And uh, I, I, all I knew is the reporter was going to be reaching out to many of the men that I had written about. And sure enough, she, you know, uh, called up uh, Eldridge and uh, he declined to comment. So 
um, that's kind of disappointing too, because I, um, you know, there, there's an opportunity there to say either I got it wrong as an author or to say, yeah, there's some truth here and I want to distance myself from this. This is not what I intended. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you would decline to comment on a piece. So I, I, I can't, um, mm-hmm. assume I know the reason why, but, but it is a bit of a mystery. Um, but for me as a historian, I really was interested far more in not what he intended, and we can we can talk about that. It's kind of interesting. I'm really much more interested in its reception and what it has meant to men, the influence it has had. And it really wasn't just Eldridge, but the success of Eldridge's book really spawned this this cottage industry yeah. of, you know, you sell 4 million copies. There's a lot of publishers who are going to come up or a lot of pastors like, hey, I could do that. I, I was so tempted when I started researching this stuff in the early 2000s. And I was seeing these books, they were just being churned out and they used the exact same cast of characters. And it really was bordering on plagiarism. It's like, I could do this. My academic books, they're not selling. I could just come up with a pen name like Chuck Steele was going to be my pen name. And I could write one of these things. And you just, Teddy Roosevelt, George Patton, you know, I, I'm a historian. I can do this. And, um, and I could sell so many books. So clearly, you know, like, and then, and then what happened is these copycat books, they were, um, less nuanced than Eldridge as time went by. And then they, they moved to this more, you know, pro military, anti Islam, and a, a much harsher application of this warrior masculinity. And so there's, there's change over time that happens there as well. And so how Eldridge currently positions himself in response to it, I'm, I'm actually quite curious. Yeah. Well, I've, been on the phone with him for an hour and 10 minutes. So I basically know the entirety of his thoughts. So oh, if good, you have any specific questions, you can ask me. We'll talk. There. But uh, I, honestly, that was part of the reason I wanted to talk to him the first time. And uh, he had a book about like uh, technology and stuff like that, which uh, completely separate from this conversation. But uh, in grad school, like I was just um, kind of just went along with the, the, uh, the popular opinion that he was kind of like just a punchline of what's wrong with like evangelical Christianity and, you know, didn't really give it a fair read on my own. And, mm-hmm. um, anyway, uh, yeah, I've been grateful for my personal interaction with him and you know, even to the point where, you know, he would say, yeah, there's some caricatures of my work out there that, you know, anyway, he, yeah. you can talk to him whenever you want. I'm, I'm not his spokesperson. Someday, uh, someday our paths will cross, I think. Yes. And it will be, I'll be very interested in that conversation. It might be Chuck Steele's path. And his that might be the ideal way because the nom de plume might uh, you know be your way in. I don't know because it sounds pretty tough. Um, okay, uh, the book Jesus and John went like it was very helpful, and and I joked that it, like it was actually it, it was like dis- like discouraging, um, but it was a discouragement. I feel like everyone needs to listen to, and I think that if you can't hear a take on where you come from, then I feel like there's a question about honesty within you. And uh, like the old adage says, if you, what is it? If you, if you fail, if you don't learn history, you're destined to hear platitudes over and over again <laughs> about how you need to study history. So anyway, hey, thank you for the time. Uh, thank you. Really helpful. I appreciate the book. And uh, good luck with uh, destroying the Gaines Empire. I think you can take it down. <laughs> I love them. I love them. And mm-hmm. yes, Joanna, if you hear this, I would love for you to redo my home. Okay. Ship lap everywhere. Ship lap love. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha